this is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome to another edition of Business Impact. It's great to have you. Now, one of these questions I always ask myself, what makes a good company or a moral company or even a virtuous company? And a question we're increasingly asking is, what is a sustainable company? Now, all of you listening, and we've covered this on the podcast a good few occasions before, we have stuff screaming at us from advertising hoardings, from bus stops, from the television from social media, whether it's TikTok or Twitter, that various companies, organizations, corporations are doing this, they're doing that, they're sustainable, they're virtuous, they're good, they're moral. All of that stuff comes at us. And do you know what? Sometimes we get some good messaging. Sometimes we get good advertisements. Sometimes we get some very strong campaigns, but absolutely distinguishing reality from mistruth <laughs> or maybe mischaracterization or exaggeration is very difficult. And we really know that a lot of companies say that they're green, they say that they're environmental, and they particularly say that they're climate conscious and they're making a contribution towards net zero. But really, does anyone scramble back and actually ask themselves or even check or even look to validate some of these claims? Well, that's all fine if you're talking to your friends about this and maybe somebody works in the company. But what happens when the lawyers get involved, when governments get involved, and whether big corporate shareholders get involved? What does it all mean? And my two guests today are going to shed a light on all of this. It's a big subject, so we've got two of them. And let me just introduce them first myself, and then we'll talk to them in a second. They're both from our accountancy section of our business school. And one is Rebecca Mon, who is an assistant professor and lecturer in accountancy. We also have Sean O'Reilly, who's also an assistant professor in accountancy, and he's also a chartered accountant, as both of them are. So they know a little bit too about figures, balance sheets, auditing, but they know a lot more about financing of green companies and also about the kind of reporting obligations companies are going to come under when we deal with the whole area of sustainability. So let me introduce them first. You're very welcome along, Rebecca and Sean. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, this is a huge subject, so that's why I thought we'd have two of you on, because we have a fair bit to get through. I, I talked in the introduction about what makes a good company and what are the obligations on companies. Now, there are various directives that are coming in and we'll concentrate on those in a few minutes. And we'll really drill down into the implications of this because we have a lot of business owners and board directors that tune in and pick up on our content. But before we get into any of this, maybe one or two of you could talk me through how you got interested. How do we have two accountancy lectures talking about sustainability at such a level and in such depth. I always thought it might be in the law faculty or corporate governance. So how did you get into all of this? My PhD was heavily involved in the financing of clean technology companies. And it was really around December 2019 when the European Commission introduced the European Union Green Deal that I kind of got a bit more interest in this particular area. So believe it or not, within the European Green Deal, there's a number of different headings, such as, you know, climate, energy, agriculture, finance, regional development, research and innovation. And within the finance side in particular, you know, sustainable finance, a lot of people kind of wonder what is sustainable finance? And when we look at the definitions under the European Union Green Deal, we see headings such as sustainable finance and investing, European Green Bond Standard, but there's also EU taxonomy for sustainable activities, corporate disclosure of climate-related information. So then I realized sustainable finance from an EU perspective is actually finance and investing on one side, but the reporting on the other side. 
And my interest primarily is around small, medium enterprises. And I just wondered, you know, how are these smaller guys going to be able to report this particular data? And that's really where I became interested in the sustainability reporting and maybe the role of the accountant in sustainability reporting in particular. And that made me realize there's a huge, huge amount of information out there with several different uh, reporting standards and frameworks. And then obviously, uh, as of January 2023, uh, the European Commission brought into law what's known as the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. Yeah, so we'll get on to that in a few minutes. Uh, Rebecca, if I could turn to you as well. I mean, obviously, we're talking a little bit in the introduction about greenwashing and a lot of claims are out there. A lot of companies attest to certain things that they're doing and maybe they, they ignore other things. This whole area, there is a little bit of a spaghetti soup going on here. And there's also a lot of claim testing, but we don't necessarily do that very well. Was that what got you into this whole area? Well, I suppose for me, Emmett, I've always had an interest in the environment, human impact in, on the environment in particular. If we look at what companies have traditionally reported, there's a big gap there. It was very much around the economic and there was a big gap here um, in terms of companies, what they were saying about the environment and the social. And as you say, they, it seems that they could say almost anything um, regardless of what their performance in the area actually was. And I suppose as an accountant and coming from an audit background, that to me didn't really seem right, that companies could be having very significant and destructive environmental and social impacts. But we didn't see any of this in their reports. Yeah, and just talk to me a little bit about what's there at the moment. As I said, we'll branch the conversation out a bit wider into the, the new obligations that are coming. But, but what's out there at the moment that you've seen in annual reports and in other places? Like what kind of you know disclosures are companies making or what are they saying about themselves? Just, just give our listeners a flavour of what's kind of currently on the shelf. So what's currently out there is a broad array of voluntary reporting guidelines and some mandatory as well. So for very large companies, about 12,000 large public interest companies in the EU, they have to report under the non-financial reporting directive. And that would be things around their workforce and some other disclosures, but it's not an, a very extensive piece of legislation. And then there's this large array of voluntary reporting guidelines, um, sustainability reporting guidelines, or they might be called social and environmental reporting guidelines. And those would be coming from the Global Reporting Initiative, the task force on, on climate-related uh, financial disclosure, the International Standards Board, uh, Sustainability Standards Board, and also uh, integrated reports. So, I mean, even as, even as I'm speaking, I'm trying to keep them all in mind. What does that acronym stand for? What What is that? <laughs> you, you did very well. You did very well to get them out there. <laughs> but it is a very broad array of guidelines that companies have to deal with. And obviously with that, there comes a lot of cost and complexity. So this deals with their primarily their standalone sustainability reports, which people may not be reading or may not be looking at, but they are there, um, but they're separate to the annual report. And then you also have all of the, I suppose, marketing that companies do around this. And there is a huge concern that that would be very much just picking out the positive aspects of their impacts and not disclosing consistently all of their impacts. So it's quite a 
complicated reporting landscape and then also quite a complicated um, landscape for marketing and greenwashing and PR. So it is certainly difficult for um, people to get their heads around. Now, Sean, I'm going to give you the, the toughest task of all. So there's a new directive coming in and it will cover financial year 2024, 20, uh, but you'll first see the reports flowing from January 2025. And this comes in under a bit of a mouthful, uh, another spaghetti soup uh, entrant here, which is the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Director, or CSRD, which is an EU directive that is being in the process of being transposed into Irish law. So it will be, you know, a set of national obligations. Now, Sean, could I ask you just maybe to, to boil down, and I know this is a very tough task, so I picked you out for the job, boil down what the main elements are under this or what the main obligations will be. Obviously, there's there's myriad of them, but could you maybe condense down the three or four that you'd pick out and sort of say these are the ones that companies will be paying the most attention to? Sure, Emmett, I'll, I'll try my best. So just to kind of build on what Rebecca said Initially, we had the non-financial reporting directive known as the NFRD, and that covered maybe up to almost 12,000 different firms. Now, just to maybe set the scene or the landscape for the requirements or the criteria that's required under the CSRD, companies that have over 250 employees, over 40 million in revenue and over 20 million in assets and public interest entities will fall under this particular um, threshold. Bigger companies, essentially. Bigger companies, yeah. And that is going to, as you said, come into place from January 2025 in respect of the financial year 2024. Now, in terms of the standards themselves, these are known as the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, another acronym, the ESRSs. They were uh, developed by a group called EFRAG, which is the European Financial Reporting Advisory Group. Within this Emmet, there's 13 ESRSs. We have two cross-cutting standards, which are, you know, general principles, and they're very, very, you know, straightforward, and most firms will be able to, to capture these. And then we have the, the second one under the cross-cutting standards is general strategy governance, materiality assessment, and disclosure requirement. Now, something that's really, really important with the ESRS is, is the concept known as double materiality or the materiality assessment. So companies themselves will have to set aside or decide what are the key risk assessment areas for that particular company. And this is where it can get very specific to in terms of the industry. So on top of the two cross-cutting standards, there is another 11 topical sector agnostic standards is what they're known as. And under that, then, we have environmental, social and governance, known as ESG. There are five environmental standards, four social standards and two governance standards. Now, without going into too much detail on this stuff, because as as you rightly said, there's a huge amount in this and we could be here all day talking about it. But I suppose the big ones, apart from the two cross-cutting standards that all the companies will have to adhere to within the 11 topical sector agnostic standards themselves, obviously under the environmental one, stuff around climate change, that's going to be very, very difficult because companies are going to have to report on their scope one, scope two and scope three greenhouse gas emissions. That's something that companies are going to greatly uh, have difficulties with, in my own opinion. When we move on to the social um, standard, and I know Rebecca might talk about this in more detail, but we have ESRS S1, which is social standard number one, which covers uh, our own workers. 
okay? But we also have ESRS S2, our standard number two, which is workers in the value chain. And that's really game changing for a number of reasons because companies are going to have to figure out, you know, how we are, how our workers in their value chain are treated. We'll have to show processes of how we're selecting some of the companies or suppliers that we're working with, which is going to be uh, very, very challenging. And then in terms of the governance, which is of huge importance also, you know, that's maybe seen as a little bit more straightforward. So, you know, to recap, as you said, on maybe two or three of the key standards, I think the cross-cutting standards are going to be really important for materiality assessment purposes. And then when we drill deeper into the environmental uh, standards, climate change, pollution, going to be really challenging for companies. And then I think the social side of it is, is going to be fascinating. Rebecca, obviously there's different things in there. As Sean has said, he's given a good account of that. Workers and emissions, there, there's a lot of controversial issues there. I was kind of thinking, and then maybe I'm totally wrong on this, but Ireland doesn't have that many. It does have some large manufacturing enterprises. We certainly don't have large extractive industries in Ireland we're mainly a service-based economy. Does that mean that companies might say, well, you know, we're not producing that many or that big an emissions contribution, so a lot of this stuff won't affect us? Uh, do you think they will assume that? And do you think they'll be wrong or right to assume that? In terms of service businesses, looking at maybe their immediate greenhouse gas um, emissions, which would be your scope one, that footprint might not be huge. But it, when you go out to scope two and three, um, they might see a bigger footprint. And also, Let's take, because one of the big service industries in, in Ireland is, you know, financial services and financial institutions. They would be, for example, seeking to decarbonize their loan book. So they would be looking at who they are lending to and what their carbon footprint is like, what their greenhouse gas emissions are like. And they will be seeking to reduce the amount of financing that they are giving to companies with a heavy carbon footprint and also seeking to price in to their interest rates, for example, a premium if you are in a uh, a carbon intensive industry. And we're already seeing that, Emmett, as well in the retail market, for example, if you think about the green loans, which are targeted at homes that have a high BER. So that's one example of how service industries are looking at that. And then around that, there'll be the reporting on this and the reporting on tar- on the on their targets for decarbonizing their loan book. Primarily, financial institutions have looked at carbon-related matters, but I think they'll need to start going beyond that and look, for example, at biodiversity, um, how they can have a positive impact in that area, especially if they have large premises, to look at reuse in the circular economy and the products that they use. For example, if you think about all of the electronic products that are used by any company and particularly service companies, then, you know, what is their thinking around that? and the waste that's generated by that and creating more circularity around that. And as well as social and governance issues, we'll see them expand their reporting and their targets in their areas and hopefully improve their performance as well. And when you say social, Rebecca, obviously that's a, that's a really big umbrella term. What kind of stuff would, would, would be in these 
these CSRD disclosures in that area? Is, is it salaries? Is it working conditions? Is it hours of work? Well, what are we going to see in that area? It's all of those things. So if we look at the social standard one on own workers, for example, so it would be around things like that we would call characteristics of the workforce. So a full-time, number of full-time employees, part-time, gender, um, and that's for both uh, employees and then non-employee workers as well. So contractors would be falling under that. Working conditions as well, training, work-life balance, health and safety, fair remuneration, equal opportunities around, for example, the gender pay gap and the employment of people with disabilities workers' rights, so your grievance procedures and the right to representation. And the one where I suppose there's been a lot of controversy in the past. Um, and so if we looked at the fast fashion industry, for example, a lot of very negative uh, social and environmental impacts in their work, in their value chain. So workers in their value chain being treated very poorly. Well, social standard two deals with that. So they will have to disclose what their policies are for engaging value chain workers um, for engaging with value chain workers about impacts, channels for workers in their valuation, in, in their value chain to raise concerns as well. So what channels, for example, does a company in fast fashion, be it Zara or Pennies, have for people who are working in their supply chain to raise concerns with them? Now, Sean, obviously an underpinning of all of this is that, you know, sun, sunlight is a solvent, you know, but by just disclosing these things alone, that will bring about change. Um, but equally, other people might say, you know, the, the disclosure will go out. These will be very big reports and a lot of very uh, well-paid professionals will put them together. You know, maybe they'll enter the media. And as, as, as uh, we've reflected on, maybe the reputation of a company may be improved equally. It may suffer, etc., but beyond the disclosure, and that's not unimportant, obviously, is there anything else going on here in terms of sanctions? Is, is there things that will make companies comply? So is there the, the reputation piece, but then the second piece, the, the teeth, if you want to put it uh, like that? Uh, what, what do you say to us on that front? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a very interesting one, Emma, and it's something that we're really unsure about at the moment because we haven't seen these reports published yet. But I think the reputational damage of companies not adhering to this correctly could be huge. And as Rebecca rightly said earlier on, from an ESG or an impact investing perspective, certain companies will be looking or certain maybe large uh, investment firms will be looking at these particular reports uh, to see maybe do they mirror image what we see from an ESG rating perspective. And I think, you know, setting of these particular targets and looking at the progress that the companies are making towards them will have a big, big impact on future investment into those companies. Um, so, look, I think it's going to be uh, really, really interesting to see when the reports come out how accurate they, they are. And that's going to be a real, real big problem, I think, for companies who are trying to um, get ready for the CSRD implementation. Sure. And Sean, how, how would you, or would you have any advice for people who are in accountancy practices or general advisorial roles with big companies? I mean, are they ready for this, do you think? Or what can things can they do to get ready? Well, look, Emmett, this might be slightly controversial, but I know from my own research and, and been heavily connected with Chartered Accountants Ireland that I'm a, I lecture on the FE programme and I have uh, a lot of exposure to, to some of these companies and the top four in particular. And from my recent conversations with these guys, they're not ready whatsoever. Uh, we can see that a lot of the companies have set up their own uh, sustainability departments. They're trying to bring in expert consultants. They're trying to bring in climate scientists to get ready for this, to get the terminology ready, to assist their clients in actually implementing the CSRD. And, and the general consensus at the moment 
And I was at a, a Chartered Accountants Ireland annual conference uh, during the summer that a lot of the companies, even some of the biggest in the world, don't have the bandwidth to capture the required data at the moment due to a number of issues around, uh, well, cost is obviously a big problem, but maybe not for the biggest companies in the world, more so the ability to capture the data and the technology that they have in place at the moment or the accountancy software that they have to capture the data. And they have you know, spent a lot of money on this and developed uh, a lot of internally uh, generated products or uh, teams to try and help with capturing the data. So it's actually capturing and managing the data itself is a huge, huge challenge. Ensuring the accuracy and reliability of that at the start is gonna be a huge difficulty, I think, for some of these companies. Yeah, I mean, it's not very far away. So they, they need to get those systems in place pretty much from January because you're, you're monitoring a, a financial year or a calendar year starting in January 2024. So that that is a very interesting perspective. Rebecca, I suppose a lot of people will say, will companies just simply tick the box? You know, you can see somebody at a board meeting, well, hey, this is a bit unfair on boards, but somebody at a company somewhere, let's leave it like that, saying, well, what, what's the minimum standard we have to meet here? And, we you know, we don't necessarily need to go beyond that. We just tick the box, get through the first year. Look, you know, maybe we can improve them then as we move forward. So is is even meeting the minimum standard going to be a big challenge? Or, or do you think that will be the attitude of some people in some companies? No doubt, Emmett, it, it will be. I suppose there's two things to think about in that area. So... The CSRD and the reporting standards are part of a really big package of measures. So this isn't the, it's not just reporting. So they're part of the, as Sean mentioned, the European Green Deal and the EU Action Plan on Financing Sustainable Growth. And that really, the aim is there not to just have companies report, but to transform what they do. So the aim within the EU is no net emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050. And within that, they have a milestone of 55% reduction of greenhouse gases by 2030. So those are really significant targets. So this reporting package is just one part of a broad set of measures and financing. So one third of the 1.8 trillion investments from the EU recovery plan is going towards this set of measures to try and change our, I suppose, sustainability trajectory. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to, to come in on that one because on either of you, uh, you know, whoever wants to pick this uh, particular thread up, but a lot of companies, their business model is is pivots around a particular supply chain or getting access to low-cost labour or inputs. You know, they may use developing countries, if that word isn't pejorative these days, but they may use emerging countries to source their materials. There may be somewhat sweatshop conditions in some places that they access uh, their supplies from. So if their whole business model is changed by these reporting obligations, you know, obviously I don't think Ireland necessarily has all of these companies or only has a very few of them. And fast fashion was mentioned a few minutes ago. But do you think those kind of companies will, will, will be able to comply at all with these or will they just simply have to put out a set of disclosures that will, as Sean says, you know, um, damage their reputation, but life will go on beyond the reputational damage. So I'm just thinking of companies that, that it's in their very essence and DNA to have an unsustainable element to what they do. And as a result of that, there's not going to be a place for them to hide. I don't know if either of you want to, to come in on that. I might just take that uh, initially, uh, Emmett, if that's okay. 
one of the benefits of having sustainability reporting standards like this is to provide some sort of level of transparency and that companies will have to report on this and they'll, maybe they'll have to nearly be shamed into admitting some of the, the stuff that they're doing. And as you say, they could be in a, an industry that's very uh, carbon intensive and, and that has poor working conditions. But if the reports are uh, meant to do what they're supposed to do and they're audited properly, and there's clear transparency in what they're doing, they will ultimately, hopefully, be forced into potentially changing that particular business model to try to adapt to a more environmental, social and governance-friendly uh, way of doing business. I don't know, if Rebecca, um, what, what you think on that one? I think, to a certain extent, this is still evolving. The EU have moved really fast on it. It's almost that we need to wait and see over the next few years as to how it will evolve. There is some flexibility within the standards. I suppose companies get to decide on what's material. So that gives them maybe scope then to ignore certain areas. And some of the disclosures are are voluntary um, rather than mandatory. So we've got both mandatory and voluntary elements to it. So I think it will be very interesting to see how this evolves over time. And when those first reports come out, it will be very telling. You know, we will get a much better idea of whether you know, there's cherry picking and it's a tick the box exercise. Well, it sounds like you're both very much grounded in realism. Like you're saying this is a very interesting development. It's a very important development, but equally you're you're withholding judgment on just how effective it will be. You've probably been around long enough, the two of you, to know we've, we've had obviously corporate governance disclosures and various reports, the Cadbury report and so on, you know, that haven't always hit the mark. So I, I think you're right to ground yourself in a bit of realism on this. I just had a technical thing, which I don't know, again, you can help me on this, but obviously this is a European initiative, um, the European Green Deal, as Sean said earlier. So these big US companies, and in many cases, if we're talking multinationals, we're talking about US managed companies are headquartered or run, although that gets fuzzy as well, but they're mainly in their in their um, core sort of setup and, and establishment, they're US companies. Do, do either of you know how that works? Like, will they just have to disclose about their European operations, their global operations? Will their US operations fall into this as well? Just if it, if either of you knew any sense of that, it would be helpful. Yeah, so Emmett, I suppose the question you asked Rebecca earlier on around the professional services firms, and we know in Ireland we have a lot of professional services firms from, from the US. And uh, from my understanding, US, UK firms, for example, if they have Irish subsidiaries or, or European subsidiaries, which of course they do, uh, they will be subject to the CSRD as well. Um, now, Rebecca, you might know a bit more detail on that than me, but uh, my understanding is that, you know, even US firms are preparing for this or that they have reporting, you know, divisions within their finance or accounting function in those organizations to look at the EU regulation in terms of what they will actually have to report on. So yes, the likes of Facebook, Google, uh, Bank of America, all the big US multinationals that are, are located or headquartered in, in Dublin will have to also adhere to the CSRD. I suppose without getting too technical, is if you have operations in the EU, you are going to be to be covered by this directive. Now, to the extent to which your operations are covered or how much of your operations are covered is an interesting one. 
to the best of my recall, I think it brings the group in, although I could be incorrect on, on, on that. Again, it's an interesting, you know, there are so many nuances in this regulation and so many things to be worked out in terms of how it is actually going to, to operate. And what's really fascinating about it is it, it's, it's a new way of looking at companies, right? So we're, we're so used to from, from cradle to grave looking at companies as financial entities. What is their reporting, you know, performance, what is their profitability, what do they reward back to shareholders? And that's what we kind of tend to emphasize. Now, increasingly, we've added so much more into your uh, conventional annual report already. But now we're seeing, let's open up this black box and look at these companies a bit closer and judge them according to different standards and different expectations. To me, that's kind of the fascinating part. And as Sean said earlier in the interview or in the conversation, is, you know, people, this will be the raw material. So, People will go along to their AGMs or their their um, shareholder meetings, you know, maybe government meetings, stakeholder meetings with, with these reports under their arm. If if they still have them, if they don't have them on their uh, their laptops and so on. Like like this this is the raw material. Like this is inside the skeleton of a company. I suppose that shown is the most interesting part. Do you think? Yeah, without a doubt, Emmett, it, it sure is because we're going to get a different side of these companies now. And as you said, you know, traditionally investors are looking at it from a perspective of you know, revenue growth, profitability, uh, you know, gearing, all of this type of stuff. But now there might be more emphasis from certain investment groups on their ESG performance. And, you know, a lot of the, the big capital markets or, or big investment banks or venture capital firms are now looking at uh, value that they can get from impact investing or they set up their own ESG uh, criteria within their organization. And look, unfortunately, we have seen in recent years some of the largest banks in the world have been brought up to SEC in, in, in the US on, on potential greenwashing charges around their ESG funds and whether they actually are ESG funds. Well, the proof will be in the pudding now when we have these reports and we can look at their progress and we can track it over time to see, well, are they actually adhering to this? Or as you guys said earlier on, is it just a marketing ploy or is it just a PR stunt that these guys are actually pulling? So the reports now we're looking at kind of finance, but it's a different measurement in terms of ESG and it's, it's going to be really interesting. Now, Rebecca, I'll, I'll leave the last word to you because we're actually, this is such a big area that it deserves and um, probably merits further time, but that's all we have at the moment. Maybe I could leave the last word with you. Obviously, companies produce all sorts of externalities and some pollute the environment, some are good and bad and others are in the middle. If you're an auditor or you're somebody who's going to be kind of testing all this out, I mean, if I'm an auditor and I've been spending a large part of my career testing out the financial performance or the financial validity of the financial statements and saying whether our company is a going concern and all, all the traditional things that you look at when you're an auditor, how difficult is it going to be for auditors to come in and say, well, they say they only knocked down this amount of trees last year or they only put this amount of emissions up into the atmosphere? Like, how is it going to change the auditor's role? who have to, uh, you know, sign off this sort of stuff? Yes, that's a really good question. And I think it's one that auditors are asking themselves at the moment as to how we are going to be able to provide at the start limited assurance, but that will probably move to move to reasonable assurance over time. How are we going to be able to do that? This is outside their traditional competencies. And so what I think we will see 
is we will see education for auditors change. Um, and that's certainly something that we're looking at on our own um, programs at the moment. So we are bringing in new modules around sustainability reporting and ESG on our postgraduate programs and also onto our undergraduate programs as well, so that we will look to train um, the auditors and accountants who have more competency in the area. But I also think that you will see the audit firms seek to employ a broader range of professionals um, and, you know, from a broader range of disciplines. So they are going to need to work with the scientists on this, for example, around areas like uh, pollution and uh, carbon, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, So they're going to have to draw on a wider range of expertise um, in this area. And so I think it might have a very significant impact on the makeup of the audit profession. And again, that will be another one to watch and see how it evolves. So a lot of challenges ahead, but I think it's important to keep in mind that there may be lots of opportunities as well. We're seeing that within the the accountancy profession and the audit profession, that there's a lot of opportunity in this area, but more broadly for companies as well, who are able to innovate and transform what they do. Um, And, you know, in in areas like sustainable building and sustainable processes, there's a huge opportunity here as well. And there's also a certain leveling of the playing field, I would hope, which means that companies will have to report consistently. Yeah, and I suppose the old phrase, isn't it? What what gets measured gets done is applies here, you know, when these things come out. Let's get our diaries open and let's make a date then maybe to have a conversation in January 2025 when these first reports start to emanate from some of the big uh, European and, as you said, global corporates and see how it goes. We're we're still in a little bit of a frontier land, I think, to see how these reports are going to be played and and how they're going to be received by both shareholders and and the wider business community and stakeholders of various stripes. So we'll make that date if you guys are okay, Sean and Rebecca. For now, I'm going to leave you you alone. Thank you very much for, for talking to us through it. They're both researching intensively in this area and they'll be tracking it very carefully. They're both assistant professors and lecturers in accounting here in the UCD Business School. That's Rebecca Mohn and also Sean O'Reilly. Thank you both of you for joining us here on Business Impact. And as I said, we talk to you again in a while. Thank you very much. Sounds good. Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Business Impact.